Before we begin today's episode, we'd like to thank our corporate sponsor, Fiduciary Trust International, for their generous support. Fiduciary Trust International helps families with significant wealth manage that wealth and the complexities that come with it across the generations. Building your legacy is about more than just managing your investments. Fiduciary Trust International helps you look at your wealth holistically today and plan effectively for your future. They will help you structure your wealth so you can enjoy it now and provide maximum benefit to your heirs and the causes you care about. If you're looking for trust, estate, and advanced tax planning services to help you grow and protect your wealth, check out Fiduciary Trust International at fiduciarytrust.com. Quiz time. Which operatic legend made her debut in the role of Madame Lidouane in the American premiere of Poulenc's Dialogues of the Carmelites in 1957? Find out on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is made possible via generous funding from its corporate sponsor, Fiduciary Trust International, and support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. Give up? It was the luminous Leontine Price who went on to reprise the role for the NBC television premiere. Written at a time of great stress for the composer, whose lover was then dying, Dialogues of the Carmelites is an exploration of faith in a time of fear. I'm your host, Elspeth Davis, and on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we have a historic recording from our Talking About Opera archives with Guild lecturer Father Owen Lee, featuring the Virgin Classics recording with Catherine Dubosc, Rita Gore, Martine Dupuis, Rachel Yacar, and José Van Damme, conducted by Kent Nagano. Dialogues of the Carmelites is, as the title indicates, mostly dialogue, sung dialogue, and Poulenc wanted it performed in the language of its audiences. It was commissioned by La Scala in Milan, and when it had its premiere there on January 26, 1957, it was sung in Italian. But within a few months, Paris and Geneva saw it in French, Cologne in German, and San Francisco in English. English was its language when it became one of the first operas televised in the United States. At the beginnings of their careers, Leontine Price, Joan Sutherland, Régine Crespin, Regina Resnick, Magda Olivero, and many others sang the sisterly roles and found them rewarding. Then, interest in the opera seemed to die out for almost two decades, till at the Metropolitan in 1977, John Dexter put it, intimate as it was, on that immense stage, all but stripped of scenery, enacted on a great tilted floor shaped like a cross. The effect, as the churning orchestra sang of mounting terror and shining faith, as the sung dialogues moved mysteriously towards the drama's shattering climax, was electrifying. Now the Carmelites, as it has come to be called, is one of the most frequently played 20th century operas around the world. The man who wrote the searching and powerful dialogues of these Carmelites was a man whose books you might have read if you took courses on a Catholic campus after World War II, Georges Bernanos, whose novels, poems, and plays were essential reading then, along with the works of those other French Catholic intellectuals, Étienne Gilson and Jacques Maritain, both of whom taught at my college in Toronto, and Paul Claudel, Léon Blois, and François Mauriac. They were rigorously intelligent and in many ways uncompromising men, and none more so than Bernanos, a super-patriot who married a girl named Jeanne d'Arc, a direct descendant of Joan of Arc's brother, and had six children by her. Bernanos believed with all his strength 
that the spiritual was no world apart, but a power that pervaded the natural world. And he found in the story of the Carmelite sisters a means of stating that belief more uncompromisingly than it had ever been stated before. The curtain rises on the first act to music as tense as the jostling of a carriage. A four-note theme associated with fear leaps upward. We are in Paris in the spring of 1789. A young chevalier bursts into the library of his father, the Marquis de la Force, who thought he had taught his son better manners. The young man is alarmed for his younger sister, Blanche. She has just returned from a visit to the convent of the Carmelite sisters at Compiègne, and her carriage has been attacked by an angry mob. The Marquis assures his son that these disturbances will soon pass. Then he admits that he still has nightmares himself about an incident from the past. He and his wife were once attacked in their carriage. A stone crashed through their window. The coachman lashed the horses till they bounded forward, and finally a troop of soldiers came to their rescue. But the next day, the Marquis's wife died, giving birth prematurely to Blanche. Here are José Van Damme as the father with a sorrowful memory and Jean-Luc Viala as his tender-hearted son. Quelques heures plus tard, revenu en cet hôtel, votre mère mourut The young chevalier is very close to his sister, but he worries that she is so easily frightened. She sometimes seems to be possessed by fear. Blanche appears in the doorway. She has heard him. She insists that she is not afraid of danger and sings a musical phrase that will recur throughout the opera at its most important moments a gentle phrase of wide intervals. Kent Nagano conducts the orchestra of the Opera de Lyon in the seven radiant chords, and Catherine Dubosc sings Blanche. Blanche says, and her words are the first of a pattern, Danger is like falling into cold water. It takes your breath away at first, but then it is easy when you are in the water up to your neck. No one knows anything yet about the guillotine. Outside the window, a storm is darkening. Blanche is exhausted from her trip and says she will go to her room. Her brother tells her to ask the servants for a candle. I know the twilight always makes you sad. When you were little, you used to say, I die every night. Blanche, a religious girl, says as she mounts the stairs, every night of one's life is like the night of the agony of Christ. A moment later, she screams from the floor overhead. She has been frightened by the shadow of a manservant on the wall. Still. She is composed when she descends again to see her father. He says quietly, This little incident can now be forgotten. She says, There is nothing so little as does not bear the signature of God. Father, with your permission, I would like to enter the Carmelite convent. He suggests that she take time to think the matter through. She reads his thoughts. Yes, Father, I know. I am physically unable to bear stress and noise 
all the daily assault on my nerves, and I know I should be more courageous, but God will not hold that against me if I consecrate my life to him. She lays her head on her father's knee, and he gently strokes her hair. The fear motif subsides. And the scene changes to the parlor of the Carmelite convent at Compiègne. There, Blanche is interviewed by the magisterial old prioress, Madame de Croissy. The Carmelite superiors are called by their family names. Blanche and the old prioress speak through the grill that separates them. The prioress is visibly ailing, and she apologizes wittily for the armchair that she must use. Then she asks, What draws you to the Carmelites? The quest for a life that is heroic. It is not the right answer. The prioress sees that immediately. We are only, she says, a place of prayer. Prayer is the only reason for our existence. Anyone who does not believe in the power of prayer will think us impostors and parasites. But our prayers, like those of anyone in the world, are all humanity praying. Our prioress is Rita Gore. Then, having pierced Blanche's façade, the prioress says something still more unsettling. Great trials await you, my child. Blanche answers, Why should I fear them if God gives me the strength? The prioress replies, What God wants to test is not your strength, but your weakness. Your words are harsh, Blanche says, weeping, I have no other refuge but this. This is not a refuge. It doesn't guard us. We guard it. The prioress knows that the revolution is coming and that the church, aligned for centuries with the crown and more recently with an extremely unjust social order, will be the target of revolutionary violence. But she has clearly seen something in Blanche. What name would you choose if we should decide to admit you as a novice? Sister Blanche of the Agony of Christ. The prioress gives a start. Then, as if consenting to admit Blanche, she says kindly, Go in peace, my daughter. In each of these opening scenes, we meet a new woman strikingly different from the last. Blanche, the old prioress, and now, in the third scene, we meet our third Carmelite. Sister Constance, a typical novice, irrepressibly cheerful, working in the laundry room, chattering on about the ironing, the blowing of noses, convent life, and how she, from the noble family of Saint-Denis, once danced with the peasants at her brother's wedding. Our Constance is Brigitte Fournier. Blanche, accepted in Carmel, but not quite so happy as Constance in the novitiate, says, Aren't you ashamed to chatter on like that when Reverend Mother lies desperately ill? Blanche, we remember, 
is a girl who never knew her own mother. Little Constance pauses and says innocently, If I could save the life of our dear mother, I would gladly offer my own life. But you know, she is 59. That's a good age to die. Constance doesn't see death as anything to be afraid of, just as she has never been afraid of life. Can I help it, she asks, if the surface of the good God is so full of joy? Aren't you afraid, Blanche says, exasperated, that God will grow weary of your good humor? Constance reverts to her previous thought. If I could save the life of our mother, I would gladly offer my own life. And suddenly her whole demeanor changes. She says quietly, Let us kneel together and offer our poor little lives for the life of our mother. That's childish, says Blanche. No, the thought came to me just now, and I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I have always hoped I would die young. Then Constance goes further, to the same wide interval theme that Blanche had sung to her father, the most important musical theme in the opera. Constance says, God is going to let you and me die together on the same day. I don't know when. I only know that it is going to happen. Blanche refuses to make any promise about dying for the old prioress. She refuses, in fact, to listen any more to Constance. And we move to the fourth scene. We are in the infirmary where the old prioress is dying. She is attended by the staunchest woman in the convent, the fourth of our ladies from religious life, the aristocratic and tough-minded Mother Marie, almost sure now to succeed to the position of authority in the convent. We are shocked to see that the once calm prioress, after a lifetime of prayer, is terrified by her oncoming death. In fact, Mother Marie thinks that she can no longer be held responsible for what she is saying and gives orders that the other sisters are not to be admitted to the room for fear of scandal. But the old prioress wants to see Blanche, Sister Blanche of the Agony of Christ, for we now hear that Agony of Christ was the same name that the prioress took for herself when, years before, she had entered the convent. The lives of the old superior and the young novice are somehow linked. Blanche enters the room and kneels beside the bed. The old prioress says, You are the last to join us here, and so the closest to my heart, like the child of one's old age. You are also the one most exposed to danger. To avert that danger, I would gladly have given my life. Now, alas, all I can give you is my death, a very humble death. Blanche leaves, not understanding the strange words, and Mother Marie, Martine Dupuis in our recording, says to the rapidly failing prioress, your only concern now should be with God. That triggers the terrible death agony of the old prioress. The once serene woman imagines she sees the convent chapel desecrated, the altar ravaged. God has forsaken us. God has renounced us. She writhes in pain, tears off her headdress, wishes she could tear her despair like a mask off her face. Blanche comes running back into the room. Blanche, the old prioress cries, death, fear, Fear of death. And with that, the woman who once took the name of the Agony of Christ falls back dead. Blanche is shocked. 
She cannot believe it. Cannot believe it. After a lifetime spent in prayer, the wonderful old prioress seems to have died in despair. In its early performances, The Carmelites was a three-act opera, and Act One ended at that point. The Metropolitan, when it first staged the work in 1977, chose to compress the opera into two acts, and both music and drama seemed to gain in momentum and power thereby. So now we move directly from the prioress's death scene to the convent chapel where she lies in state in an open coffin. The novices, Blanche and Constance, are taking their turn keeping vigil through the night, singing in Latin the Office of the Dead. The clock strikes, and Constance goes to wake the two sisters who will now take their turn keeping watch. Blanche, left alone with the dead body, is overcome with fear. She runs to the door. The stern Mother Marie is there, suddenly gentle with the problematic novice. You're trembling from the cold, not from fear. I'll go with you now to your room. The orchestra plays the dead prioress's theme one last time. In the next scene, Blanche and Constance are making a cross of flowers for the old prioress's grave. Blanche wonders if Mother Marie will be the new prioress. Oh, I hope so, says Constance spontaneously. Blanche replies, you always think that God acts according to your wishes. Why shouldn't I, Constance says, and she adds in one of Bernanos' most quoted lines, perhaps what we think is chance is really the logic of God. This little scene then becomes, for any interpretation of what the opera means, the most important scene of all, and it belongs to the young intuitive Constance. Think of the death of our dear mother, she says. Who would have thought that she would have so much trouble dying, that she would die so badly? It is as if, when he gave her her death, the good Lord made a mistake. It's like a man at a cloakroom giving you someone else's coat. Yes, I think our mother's death belonged to someone else. It was a death much too small for her, so small that the sleeves barely reached to her elbows. Blanche reacts as she always has. Her death belonged to someone else. What can that possibly mean? Once again the orchestra plays and Constance sings the broad interval strain that is a cross-index to the opera's meaning. That is to say, what can that possibly mean? It means that someone else, when the time comes to die, will be surprised to find it so easy, that it fits so comfortably. We die not for ourselves alone, but for one another, or sometimes even in the place of another. Who knows? <laughs> The scene ends. We move to the chapter room 
where the sisters have elected their new prioress. She is not, as it turns out, Mother Marie. She is a humble peasant woman, our fifth and final Carmelite, Madame Lidouin. Like her predecessor, the new prioress is referred to by her family name. In an opera with five equally important roles for women, this new prioress is, I think, the role of roles. I'll never forget the effect Teresa Stratus made in this scene, as, radiating love and happiness, she went from sister to sister, clasping hands and speaking words of encouragement. Teresa Stratus had spent some time with her namesake, Mother Teresa, and her characterization of this new prioress reflected something of the goodness she had found in Calcutta. My dear daughters, says the new prioress, we have lost our beloved mother just when her guidance was most necessary to us. The times are changing, and we have no assurance that we will be protected. What the future holds, I do not know. Goodwill, patience, and kindness are the virtues for humble women such as we. We have not the courage of the great ones of this world, and we are not suited for martyrdom. Prayer is our life. I ask your pardon for expressing myself in the simple fashion I have used all my life. Our new prioress is Rachel Yakar. The peasant woman turns to someone much more authoritative than she. Mother Marie, will you find a proper ending for my address? She knows that the noblewoman has very different ideas about what the Carmelites should be doing at this time of crisis. Mother Marie thinks they should be stealing themselves for martyrdom. But in deference to her new superior, Mother Marie simply says, My sisters, her reverence has told us that our first duty is to pray. Let us obey her, not with our lips only, but with our hearts. The sisters sing an Ave Maria. The opera, which has consisted to this point of mostly sung dialogue over a melodious orchestra, suddenly bursts into luminous part singing.
The orchestra plays the theme of the new prioress. That is where, at the Metropolitan, the interval comes. Dialogues of the Carmelites is based on an actual incident. I don't think I'm spoiling the story for anyone when I say that on July 17, 1794, 16 nuns from the Carmelite convent at Compiègne, a town about a half-day's distance on horseback from Paris, died beneath the blade of the guillotine as enemies of the people. Only a few days later they might have been spared when Robespierre himself was executed on the ninth of Thermidor and the reign of terror ended. The sisters were beatified twelve years later in 1806. Only one of the nuns escaped execution, Mother Marie. She had been summoned by the commune to Paris on the matter of her family's fortune and was away when the other sisters were rounded up. She survived to write the story of her fellow Carmelites in a diary, which was the first of a series of works leading up to the opera we have. Father Bruckberger asked Bernanos, the most famous Catholic writer of his day, to flesh out the scenario with dialogue. Bernanos like Gertrude von Lefort, turned the story into something very much about himself. He was 59, a good time to die, and after self-imposed exile during the war, he had returned to France at the personal request of Charles de Gaulle. He did not like what he saw. His country's spiritual values, already undermined by the cowardice of those who had collaborated with the Nazis, seemed to be giving way under new waves of materialism and atheism. The uncompromising Bernanos projected his pessimistic view of post-war France and his own sense that he soon would die into his text, which is political, religious, and intensely personal at the same time. Many people still don't like his text. One expert on operatic singing, with a good sense of drama, too, said of the script that it was, quote, mere diddlings over abstractions of death and guilt, often quite sophistical and foolish, pompous, querulous, and above all, unclear. Bernanos rejected script, difficult as it was, was mounted successfully in Paris as a straight play, and it attracted the attention of Francis Poulenc, a fashionable but facile composer who wanted to write something in a more serious vein. Poulenc dedicated his opera to four composers, Verdi and Monteverdi, Debussy and Mussorgsky, declaring them the major influences on him. The opera is stronger, not weaker, for being drawn from these various sources. Poulenc was not a composer of great gifts, and his music was, for a long time, best known for its insouciance and irreverence. He was thought by the smart set in Paris to be something of a clown. No composer was more open. His friends said that he was as spontaneous and simple as a child, kind and generous, but at heart he was anxious about many things, perhaps most especially about his faith. He came from a family that was devoutly Catholic, but he had abandoned his beliefs when he fell in with Paris's intellectual avant-garde. Then a close friend was killed in an auto accident, and Poulenc went to the shrine of the Black Virgin of Rocamadour to pray and to compose his Litanie à la Vierge Noire, the model for much other religious music, including the hymns that made their way into the Carmelites. Poulenc needed the faith that came from writing his religious opera. His own health was failing, and like his heroine, he was very much afraid of dying. 
Act two begins with a heavy statement of the fear motif. The revolution is imminent. The young Chevalier de la Force comes to the convent, anxious for his sister Blanche. Mother Marie is present during their meeting, which takes place with brother and sister on either side of the grill. Our whole family is fleeing the country, he says. You must come with us, Blanche. Blanche insists that in the convent she has found not only happiness, but freedom from her old fear. Her brother is not convinced, for Blanche looks exhausted. He says in another often quoted line, that it is her fear of fear that keeps her in the cloister. He turns to go, respecting her wishes. Then, surprisingly, she calls him back, clutching the grill. You're always pitying me. I am a soldier like you in my own way. I'm ready to face danger, just as you are. He gives her a long, indefinable look and leaves. Blanche knows in her heart of hearts that she really is afraid. She turns to Mother Marie. Oh, Mother, I lied when I said that, but I couldn't bear his pity. In the convent chapel, the chaplain is folding away his vestments after Mass. My sisters, this is the last Mass I can say for you. I have been forbidden to perform my duties. I have a price on my head. We are now like the early Christians. It is a heroic time for Carmel. He leads them in the second of the opera's three choral pieces, an Ave Verum. Our chaplain is Michel Seneschal. Blanche accosts the chaplain at the door. What will become of you, father? Nothing more than the danger I already know. They will kill you if they recognize you. They may never recognize me. Will you be in disguise? Yes, those are now our instructions. Dear Sister Blanche, don't be afraid. I won't be very far away. I'll come here as often as I can. He blesses her and leaves. Only to reappear a moment later, he has been recognized in the street and has narrowly escaped arrest. He leaves quickly through a side door as an angry mob bursts into the convent, led by four commissioners in uniform. One of them proclaims, Whereas it was decided by the Legislative Assembly in session the 17th of August, 1792, on the coming 1st of October, all houses which at present are still occupied by members of religious orders will be evacuated by the same and put up for sale at the discretion of the proper authorities. Do you wish to register any objection? Mother Marie faces him boldly. How can we possibly object when there's nothing for us to decide? We only ask a few clothes since you forbid us to wear these. Oh, the commissioner says in mocking tones, so you're eager now to be defrocked and dress the same as everyone else. I can answer that easily, says the fearless Mother Marie. It isn't the uniform that makes the soldier, and we, no matter what we wear, will always be humble servants. The people, he counters, have no need of servants. But they have a great need of martyrs, she rejoins, that is the service we shall render. Bah! In times like these, he says, to die is nothing. She will not give up. To live is nothing when life is as thoroughly debased as your paper money. 
The commissioner has met his master. He sputters, Those words would cost you dear if you said them to anyone else but me. The crowd starts to disperse, and the commissioner takes the proud noble woman aside and says, Do you take me for one of those bloodthirsty thugs? I was a sacristan in the parish of Chelles. The priest was like a brother to me. I have no choice but to howl with the wolves. I must tell you now to beware of the blacksmith Blancard. He's an informer. Mother Marie has been learning who is and who isn't trustworthy. Meanwhile, Blanche is overwhelmed with terror, crouching in a corner like, the stage directions read, like a poor wounded bird. The sisters have a little statue of the infant Jesus which they carry in procession on Christmas Eve. One of them brings it from its niche and places it in Blanche's hands. The little king of glory, she says, will give you courage. But suddenly the crowd outside starts up the revolutionary anthem, Saira. Blanche drops the tiny statue. Its head cracks on the flagstones. In the next scene, the new prioress has been called to Paris by the authorities, and Mother Marie summons the sisters to the chapel, which lies in ruins. It has been desecrated, and the altar has been ravaged. The chaplain is there in civilian clothes, summoned by the request of Mother Marie. The absolutist aristocrat has seized her opportunity. In the absence of the new prioress, she is in charge. I assure you, she says to the chaplain, that the sisters are fully prepared for the vow that must be taken. She wants the sisters to vow that they will go together to martyrdom if it comes to that. But she concedes, if there should be even one of you against this, we will stop at once. I suggest we decide the matter with a secret ballot. The sisters are relieved, for almost surely the motion will be defeated. Blanche will vote against it. They cast their votes one by one, and the chaplain conveys the outcome to Mother Marie, who announces impassively, There was one vote against. That is enough. We shall not take the vow. Who, we wonder, cast the single vote in opposition? Constance cries, It was I, really, but now I've changed my mind. I am now in full agreement with my sisters. Please allow me to join you. Blanche begins to weep and covers her face in her hands. Almost surely Constance did vote against the motion, out of consideration for Blanche. But now that Constance knows that Blanche voted for the vow, it can be taken by them all. The chaplain begins the ceremony. Blanche, too afraid after all to take the vow, runs away. In the next scene, the sisters, dressed in civilian clothes, carrying pitifully small bundles, are evicted. A police officer says, Citizens, we congratulate you on your disciplined behavior and your public spirit, but we warn you that we shall keep our eyes on you from now on. No more living in community. No more dealing with enemies of the state, with priests who oppose the republic and are henchmen of the pope and the tyrants. In ten minutes, you will appear before the court one by one and receive the card that will allow you once again to enjoy the blessings of liberty under the watchful eye of the law. The sisters begin to disperse. Mother Marie is now apprehensive about the vow she has had the sisters take in the new prioress's absence. But if I was wrong in what I did, she says, the fact remains that what is done is done. We can't be subservient now. The new prioress, who not only wasn't there when the vow was taken, but had actually disapproved of the idea, now says quietly, Each of you will answer individually before God for her vow, and I will answer for all of you. Blanche has fled to her father's home, only to find it despoiled and occupied by revolutionaries. She has hired on there as a servant, thinking senselessly that her own home is the last place the revolution will look for her. Mother Marie finds her there, making soup in what was once the library we saw in the opera's opening scene. 
The older woman tells Blanche she has found a much better place for her to hide. Blanche only wants to be left in peace. She does not want the pity and protection of the others. I have done nothing wrong. Fear is not a sin. I was born in fear. I have lived in fear, and I still do. My father is the only one who might have stopped me from saying all this, and he is dead. They guillotined him a week ago, and here, in his house, she begins to cry, they slapped me, they struck me. Mother Marie says, to be despised, Blanche, is not the real misfortune, but only to despise oneself. She gives Blanche an address in Paris where she will be safe. An angry voice comes from the next room, calling Blanche to her servant's duties. Blanche runs out of her father's home to find that safer place. There follows a brief scene that is entirely spoken. On a street near the Bastille, Blanche undergoes something like the denial of St. Peter. She meets an old woman who has come from Compiègne. They've arrested those Carmelite sisters. Blanche starts. The woman asks, Do you know anyone there? Blanche lies. I've never been to Compiègne. We move across Paris to the Conciergerie, where the sisters, in their civilian clothes, are crowded together in a prison cell. They have made a little shrine there for the mended statue of the infant Jesus. It is morning, and they will go to the guillotine that day. Only two are missing, Blanche and, amazingly, Mother Marie. As it happened, she was away when the others were rounded up. The new prioress, in her finest moment, sings, It was in my absence that you decided to take the vow of martyrdom. Now, as of this moment, I take that vow with you. Do not worry about it any more. Christ himself, in his agony in the garden, knew the fear of death. An officer enters, reads off their civilian names one by one, and says, Whereas you have gathered together unlawfully in secret meetings against the revolution, you constitute a body of rebels who nourish in your hearts the criminal hope of seeing the people of France once more in the chains of tyrants, to see liberty drowned in the rivers of blood that your infamous plots have brought about in the name of God. The Revolutionary Tribunal has in consequence decided that all the aforementioned are condemned to death. The new prioress stands among her huddled sisters and sings, My daughters, I wanted to save you with all my heart. If I have done badly, God will attend to it. And now I give you my maternal blessing forever. The scene shifts briefly to a street in Paris. Mother Marie sees the chaplain there, disguised in civilian clothes. The sisters have been condemned to death, he says. She turns to run to the prison. I cannot let them die without me. I took the vow, too. He says, you made that vow to God. If it has pleased him to spare you, he is only taking back what is his. But, she says, they'll look for me, and I won't be there. The priest says, think only of his look on which you should fasten your own. The last overwhelming scene is at the Place de la Révolution. The crowd is out for blood. The Carmelites arrive in tumbrils. Constance, the last of them, leaps down to the ground joyfully. With the peasant prioress at their head, the sisters mount the scaffold one by one and make their way to the guillotine, which is off stage. Poulenc wrote for them a death-braving Salve Regina, the hymn the historical Carmelites actually sang in plain chant on their way to their deaths. 
Mother Marie is not there to see the execution, but the chaplain is, in civilian clothes, and as each sister mounts the scaffold, he quietly gives her absolution, making a furtive sign of the cross under his cloak. The first slash of the guillotine, a shocking sound, interrupts the Salve Regina for a moment, and the orchestra stops its death march. Then the hymn and the march start up again until the next execution and the next. The terrible whack of the blade occurs off stage at unpredictable intervals, and it is that very unpredictability out of sync with the inevitable march of the orchestra that holds the listener in suspense. Even the crowd grows silent. As each sister is executed, the strain of Poulenc's Salve Regina thins out till only the voice of Sister Constance, the last to mount the scaffold, is heard. Then there is utter silence. Constance stops singing. She turns, catches sight of Blanche in the crowd, and gives her a radiant look. The orchestra plays... To that theme, Blanche had once said of danger, it takes your breath away for a moment, then it is easy. And to that theme, Constance had once said, someone else, when the time comes to die, will be surprised to find it is so easy. We die not for ourselves alone, but for one another, or sometimes even in the place of another. But now... No words pass between the two young women, only that theme with its seven radiant chords. Constance turns back toward the guillotine, resumes the Salve Regina, and her life is cut off in the middle of the last word. Then, to the amazement of awe, Blanche comes forward from the crowd and calmly mounts the scaffold too, singing not the Salve Regina, but that affirmation of victory over death, the last stanza of the Veni Creator, glory to God the Father and to his Son who rose from the dead and to the Spirit for ages upon ages. Blanche walks forward as the others had and the blade cuts off her last word. The crowd disperses slowly and in silence. The last theme we hear is the first theme we heard at the opera's start, the four-note motif of fear. Now, at last, it is laid to rest.
And now we might well ask, what does it mean? First, let's say that for most viewers, no meaning has to be spelled out. I've often taken a crosstown bus back to St. Jean-Baptiste or to St. John the Martyr parishes after performances of Mozart or Verdi at the Met, and the bus has been full to overflowing with opera-goers happily discussing the evening singers and performance. But after the Carmelites, other people have told me the same has been true for them. There is absolute silence on that crowded bus as it makes its way from the Met across Central Park and to the Upper East Side. Once I was standing next to a girl who had seen the performance and was carrying a biography of that great singer Lotte Lehmann. I broke the prevailing silence and asked her quietly, Do you like Lotte Lehmann? She responded with a polite yes and then said, Excuse me, I just can't talk now. Few operas have that impact. This one stays with you for days afterwards, and that's when you start trying to sort things out. What did Bernanos mean when he called his text Dialogues of the Carmelites? Dialogue is all he was asked to write, but to anyone who knows the life work of this man, the dialogues of his Carmelites are exchanges of more than words. They are exchanges of to use the theological term Bernanos invariably uses in his novels, they are exchanges of grace. Grace is the share each one of us has in the life of God. Bernanos ended an earlier work with a phrase from the writings of a young Carmelite nun, St. Therese of Lisieux, everything is grace. In the dialogues of the Carmelites, he wanted to extend the centuries-old doctrine of grace so that it would encompass and explain all of human experience, including our awareness of what lies beyond human experience. He wanted to illustrate an idea that originated in the early history of Eastern Christianity, spread to the West, and by the 5th century had worked its way into the Christian creed. It was called the Koinonia ton Hagion, or in the West, the Communio Sanctorum, the communion of saints. As the idea developed in Europe, and especially in France, it came to mean that all members of the Church, living and dead, are bound together in a community, into a close-knit personal relationship with one another, effected by grace, by the share each of us has in the union of the Father with his Son in the Holy Spirit. Bernanot saw in that doctrine an answer to the greatest questions humankind has asked. What is God? Why is there evil in the world? Why do the innocents suffer? And have our lives any meaning? It is little Constance who expresses the idea, and with an understanding more radical than any professional theologian has suggested. For Constance, not only can one person through prayer touch another person's life, one person can exchange his or her life or death for another's. Why did the old prioress die in so much terror? Why at the end does Blanche die so calmly and courageously? Is it because, as an ordinary interpretation of the doctrine of the communion of saints would suggest, the old prioress had prayed for Blanche? No, it is much more than that. There is a dialogue, an exchange between Blanche and the old prioress, an exchange of grace, indeed an exchange of deaths. Blanche receives at the end the peaceful, fearless death that the old prioress might have had because the old prioress has already suffered in her last agony Blanche's frightening, terrible death for her. Is such a thing possible? Is it good or even acceptable Christian theology? Bernanos wants us to believe that it is. He forces his listeners to face the logical conclusions of their belief in the communion of saints, saying, in effect, 
If you really believe that all the people in the church, living and dead, are in spiritual communion with one another, and that a prayer said for another really touches that other, that grace passes from soul to soul, then you must logically believe in the ultimate, all but unbelievable exchange of graces. You must believe that one of us can take on another's doubts and fears and give in exchange his own faith and peace. You must believe that one of us can even die another's death for him or for her. Jesus once said that the greatest truth was hidden from the wise and prudent and revealed to little ones. So it is that Constance says with innocent insight, Who would have thought that our mother would have so much trouble dying, that she would die so badly? It is as if at the moment when he gave her her death, the good Lord made a mistake. It's like a man at a cloakroom giving you somebody else's coat. Yes, I think our mother's death belonged to someone else. It was a death much too small for her. And again, Constance had said, someone else, when the time comes to die, will be surprised to find it so easy, that it fits so comfortably. We die not for ourselves alone, but for one another, or sometimes even in the place of another. Who knows? Who knows indeed if the beautiful doctrine of the communion of saints can be pushed so far? The first prioress believes that it can when she says to Blanche, To ward off danger from you, I would gladly have given you my life. Now all I can give you is my death. Poulenc, too, believes in these mysterious exchanges of grace, these dialogues that are more than words. In the last scene, when Constance on the scaffold sees Blanche cowering in the crowd, she smiles radiantly, but says nothing. In the time-honored way of opera, the music says what we must know. Poulenc repeats the luminous theme that had accompanied both Constance's statement on the communion of saints and Blanche's presentiment that her death, when it came, would be fearful at first, but then easy. As the music speaks, something of Constance passes to Blanche. No more living in community, the commissioner had told the Carmelites when the revolution came to the convent gates. But that ordinance has no real power over the community life these women lead, over the dialogues, the mysterious movements of grace that pass between them. Consider the fates of the other two women in the story. Mother Marie imposes her absolutist view on the community, arranging for the sisters to take a vow to die together in the absence of the new prioress. Yet she herself is, of no choice of her own, absent when the time comes to die. The new prioress, the humble peasant woman, dies the death the other had vowed. While we cannot miss the political import of this, for the best people of France braved death for others in the face of Nazi tyranny, it is first and foremost a theological statement. The fact that one sister dies and the other is spared might have happened by chance. Each sister was called away at a different moment of decision. But as Constance said, perhaps what we call chance is actually the logic of God. Bernanos' answers to the great questions of life are suggested in the dialogues throughout the opera, and they come crowding in overwhelmingly in the final scene. They are fearsome answers that hurtle at us as the guillotine blade drops with shuddering shock. But like death itself, they are fearsome only at first, and then easy. Why is there evil in the world? Because through our failure to do good, we allow its presence. Why do the innocent suffer? Because we allow evil. Has the suffering of the innocent any meaning? Yes, because others in need can receive grace from it. What is God? Grace, which moves freely among all good people and binds them together in community. Grace is the closest understanding we have in this life of what God is. We have always defined grace as our share in God's life. 
If evil is only the absence of grace, and grace moves freely everywhere, and our sufferings can make up the balance of grace, why need we fear? The Carmelite saint of modern times, little Therese of Lisieux, wrote simply, What does it matter? Everything is grace. And Gertrude von Lefort, who first fashioned the character of Blanche de la Force, ended her novel, and it is a subtly powerful book, well worth reading, with the narrator telling the reader, And now, my friend, it is your turn to speak. It is your turn. The dialogues continue. That was lecturer Father Owen Lee discussing Poulenc's devastating tragedy, Dialogues of the Carmelites. For more information, visit metopera.org and make sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera Guild, Opera News, and the Metropolitan Opera on your favorite social media platforms to keep up to date on all things opera. I'm your host, Elspeth Davis, and thank you for listening.